Welcome to the Wander Learn Podcast. I'm your host, Francis Tapon. In this episode, I have once again, Trent Hone, who is the author of Mastering the Art of Command, which is all about Admiral Nimitz, who led the United States in the Pacific War and World War II. But we're not going to be talking so much about that. You might make sure that you listen to the podcast episode previously, where we talked about some of the history. Now we're going to move into the kind of the present day. And I'm going to throw him some tough questions. And we're going to start with question number one, uh, Trent, which is, could hypersonic missiles, these are missiles that are going at, I don't know, five to ten times the speed of sound, could they make navies obsolete? And for those who don't know, uh, apparently the United States currently has no defense against such missiles. These are, they go practically up into space and they're coming down at such velocity that it's hard to track them and to, to shoot them out of the sky. And so in theory, one of these hypersonic missiles, if it's loaded with enough uh, explosive material in it, it could bl- could take down an entire aircraft carrier that's worth uh, $13 billion. So what do you think about these hypersonic missiles and will they make navies obsolete, Trent? First kind of caveat this answer to say that, you know, I'm not a modern uh, defense analyst. I, I look at the history. The, the book is primarily focused about history. And so uh, I'm going to draw uh, analogies from there uh, because I think they give us a, a useful window into how to think about modern technologies like hypersonic missiles and, and, and how they might work. And so my suggestion is I, I don't think hypersonic missiles are going to make navies obsolete. I think if we can look at uh, how other revolutionary technologies have uh, been introduced to uh, to war and, and, and transformed fighting, that would provide a useful window. And I think a good analogy here might, might be the machine gun. You know, the machine gun has made certain types of infantry tactics obsolete. Uh, tactics that, at least among the major European powers, were were fairly common and uh, before World War One, and they quickly realized that, uh, well, in the face of you know modern firepower, machine guns, and modern artillery, those kinds of tactics don't work anymore. But they didn't conclude that infantry was obsolete, and it, if anything, it becomes more important because you, you still have to to seize ground, you still have to advance against the enemy, and but you have to do it in uh, new and creative ways that allows infantry to survive in this in this context now um, you have to disperse you have to devolve command to smaller units and you have to be more flexible in terms of how you fire and maneuver in order to overcome the advantages that the the, the a defender has with this kind of equipment and i, I think hypersonic missiles will, will probably be similar uh, so we may not be able to a, employ the kinds of tactics that have been fairly common on the sea uh, up until now. And instead, they they may have to uh, adapt and adjust. Uh, how can you prevent from being seen so that you can be targeted by a hypersonic missile like this? Or how could you uh, disperse forces in such a way that it becomes much more difficult to secure a hit uh, or damage a large number of ships or, you know, particularly valuable ships uh, with an attack of this nature? How could you force an enemy to exhaust uh, a number of their missiles, their hypersonic missiles without much, without much effect or the things that you could do from a, from a deceptive standpoint uh, to, to help uh, keep them from being as damaging as the, as they might otherwise be. And if we think about navies, I think the introduction of uh, the airplane, the aircraft carrier, might be a good analogy here as well, right? Airplanes 
change the dynamics of, of naval warfare. Initially, they just augment existing functions. They sort of scout, they spot uh, the fall of shot for, for, for battleships. Uh, but eventually they become a new and powerful weapon system and, and navies have to make a transition away from centralized battle fleet to a more distributed network of, of carrier task forces. In Nimitz's time, the, the U.S. Navy undergoes that, that, that transition. Perhaps there's a similar transition with uh, this hypersonic era and the introduction of more unmanned systems. Uh, maybe even the you know, navies are going to uh, invest in or, or introduce a, a, a paradigm shift that allows them to, to adapt to that new world. It, w- it wouldn't surprise me, and I know the Navy is working diligently, uh, the U.S. Navy today, to try to understand how best to integrate unmanned systems into its its tactics and operations. I think they have a long way to go, but I think there's a very useful um, path being charted there. What do you think if Admiral Nimitz were alive today, what would he say about today's Navy? Would he be impressed, disappointed, frustrated, love it? <laughs> well, Nimitz is very, was very demanding. Uh, a quote that I uh, employ in, in the book uh, is from... Um, Vice Admiral Mustin, his oral history. Mustin, as a junior officer, was on board uh, Cruiser Augusta when Nimitz was its captain and, and when it was the flagship of, of the Asiatic fleet. And, and Mustin's memory was that Nimitz's approach was to, to do things, quote, as close to perfection as human limitations permit. End quote. Uh, you know, so that's a very high standard, and and Mustin saw Nimitz take this approach with the uh, officers aboard uh, Cruiser Augusta, like those that didn't take an interest in growing the skills uh, of their subordinates of of their sailors, um, would be would be removed, it, not to a lot of fanfare or anything, but Nimitz would see to it that that they were sent elsewhere uh, because they weren't meeting his standard. So I think. Nimitz would be very critical of today's Navy in, in certain respects. Okay, let's go on to the next thing. Now, you may have heard uh, just a few months ago, there was a war game scenario between the United States and China going head to head over Taiwan. And the outcome in the various different scenarios, the United States would win each scenario, but at heavy, heavy losses. And did you follow that at all? And what was your take on that war game, not very closely, but you you gave me a nice link to read, which I've which I've gone through. So thank you for that. Uh, there are a few things that jumped out to me that I thought were impressive. One was the the use of uh, a physical war game. Right, this is a tabletop with uh, you know that, and you can maneuver the pieces by hand. Uh, and in that visceral sense, I think it gives uh, produces a, a different approach to to learning than if it were all computer based. So that impressed me. The fact that they were doing multiple runs of, of this war game with different starting assumptions, that was also impressive because that suggests to me it's very much about uh, learning for the people involved. You know, what are what are the important factors here? What are the different decisions that we can make? What are the, what are the, the, the crucial options uh, that we could, you know, seize or, or, or that we, that we need to, to move beyond. And so I thought that was uh, really interesting. Another thing that jumped out from uh, what I read was the importance of logistics, right? Apparently one of the reasons why uh, the United States 
triumphs uh, in a lot of these games is that eventually they are able to cut off any Chinese forces that make it to Taiwan uh, and, and, you know, sort of starve them, deprive them of uh, food, fuel, ammunition, etc. Et and that made me think about some of the things that uh, Nimitz and his planners were concerned about in World War II for a long time. They had a plan to invade Taiwan, which was which was then called Formosa, uh, and the objective was to do that uh, at one point in, in early 1945. And logistics are one of the reasons that they don't. Uh, it, it, there aren't enough military forces. There aren't enough assault troops. There isn't enough uh, amphibious shipping. There there aren't enough service forces. Uh, those uh, troops that'll be involved in in logistics uh, to make the invasion of uh, of Taiwan then Formosa uh, really come off uh, to make it a success, and and so it, it's it's a it's a large island. It, it requires uh, a steady flow of of material, and if you're able to cut that off, as uh, U.S. forces were in these in these war games, then any forces that uh, China brings to the island can can pretty uh, quickly be put into a position where they could no longer fight uh, successfully. So that's what that's what winning in the in the games means, um, and I think I think that's a that's a valuable lesson. But you know we have to remember it's a it's a game, you know it's based on certain assumptions. Some of those assumptions could be wrong, and I think one of the most valuable things that it's generating is is more creative thinking uh, among the uh, people who are going through it, particularly the you know current U.S. military officers and any any allies who are invited to participate. What do you think is the percentage chance that there is a war over Taiwan in between now and the year 2050. Oh, gee. <laughs> I do not have a crystal ball. <laughs> I know, I know. Nobody's going to. I'm not. Did you notice I'm not even betting you a dollar on this one, Trent? <laughs> if you lose, it's just, it's not a big deal. Well, well I, I mean, I, I believe that there is, is an awful lot of, um, desire uh, on, on the part of, uh, of China's leaders to see Taiwan brought into the fold. I suspect uh, that they are going to be more likely to embrace a, 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 a kind of integration that doesn't rely on military force and instead allows you know, time and, and, and culture to, to play a role. So I wouldn't be surprised uh, as, you know, as heated as some of the discussions and negotiations are at this point, I wouldn't be surprised if instead of any military operation, there is, there are uh, what we would call gray zone activities that are, are, are designed to allow mainland China to exert a, a more dominant influence on, on Taiwan and, and ultimately absorb it over over decades uh rather than some kind of a some kind of a shooting war um that would be my sense but you know i've been wrong about many things so you know. okay <laughs> i'll join I'm, I'm in that same club now when i was a naive teenager i always thought to myself and i think a lot of people who are listening to this are probably thinking the same thing that like why the hell does the united states need 800 military bases overseas why does the united states navy have to patrol all over be the, the global policeman you know, have 11 air or 12 aircraft carriers and all this other stuff. Why can't we just cut the United States budget of the military to a quarter? I mean, right now, the United States spends about 40, 45% of all the military spending in the entire planet is the United States military. 
And a lot of people look at that statistic and they say, well, why do we need to be so big? Why can't we just be 25% of the world's spending um, or even less, 10% of the entire world spending? Why do we need to be so much? So if the United States Navy, let's do a fun what if scenario, shrank to 25% of its current size, so it got rid of three out of four ships, what would then happen to the world? Would piracy erupt everywhere? Uh, what would happen? <laughs> Would you well, and I, I become Somalis? <laughs> I don't think I don't think piracy would would erupt everywhere. But the, the, your your question is is seated in what I think is a really valuable debate. Like the the the, the nation and its uh, its politicians and its citizenry, especially its citizenry, should be talking about these things. What 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 are we spending this money for? Whether it's you know on the military or or you know anything else. Uh, and so what is, what is a Navy for? What does a Navy do? And I was really struck because, uh, the department of defense recently issued, uh, you know, a response to, uh, some congressional input that basically said, you know, well, focused almost entirely on, on the Navy's wartime role, uh, which was extremely disappointing for me because I, the Navy has responsibilities, uh, beyond just, you know, shooting wars. Uh, you mentioned piracy. That is something that the, that the U.S. Navy has gotten involved in, you know, trying to thwart, ensure the safe transit of uh, shipping across the world's oceans. I think that, you know, that's very important. We all in the United States and, and other nations consume things that are produced overseas. Most of that has to travel on ships. So ships need to be able to transit the oceans. There's a lot of uh, things that transit over the oceans. Uh, we can also think about uh, undersea cables, like a lot of the internet connectivity um, that we rely on, particularly if we work in an international firm or, or communicate with people out, outside of the, uh, um, the, the continent of uh, North America, where you're using undersea cables for a lot of that traffic and, and communication. So very large and significant pieces of the global economy rely on safe transit uh, on or or below the the world's oceans, and and the, the navy has a key role to play there. And I do think that uh, current officers uh, and and then uh, you know the civilian leadership of uh, the U.S. Navy should be speaking about that more. Should be explaining uh, in you know clear terms, sort of this this line of causality that y you you want the standard of living that you enjoy, you want to be able to consume these goods. Many of these things are produced overseas. If you had to buy them domestically or produce them domestically, it'd be far more expensive. So your standard of living would go down. This is why we we have and we we pay for and we maintain a navy. It, it, over and above that. It has the ability to participate should war uh, break out uh, and and you know help further the uh, the political interests of, of of the nation. But there's a certain you know staffing and spending level that I think is necessary to maintain uh, the navy and and secure the global global commons, as it said. Now, I do think also that it's important to stress that a lot of that activity happens in collaboration with in partnership with um, allies and and other nations that you know may not be in an alliance with the United States, but at least willing to cooperate. And so I think that needs to be you know, advertised and, and, uh, and, and talked up as well. Um, otherwise, I mean, 25% of the current size, that is such a major shrink. I, I, yeah. well, I, but the, there's a point to that. I mean, the whole point is, is to get us to get people to re visualize how much, 
how how different would the world be? And so I'm trying to imagine on a on a visual level of some sort, what would be that difference? Because for example, I mean, like right now, let's say you're in Saudi Arabia or in the Middle East, and you want to make sure that the oil filled tankers with full of petroleum are able to transit, you know, through the Malacca Straits and through all over the world, uh, through the Suez Canal and all over the planet, and do so peacefully through the Strait of Hormuz and et cetera. And if you took away the United States Navy, why wouldn't, let's say, other navies then just make sure that their ship, let's say, I don't know, I'm Saudi Arabia and I have a small navy. So I make sure I'm responsible to to escort this ship to a certain point, And then I hand it off to another military navy for another country and say, okay, you kind of help kind of protect this ship from here to the next you know, port as opposed to, I don't know what the United States does. I imagine they coordinate all this stuff. I'm just trying to visualize this stuff. I think a lot of people don't know what's the utility of the Navy. So one fine, one way to find out how useful a Navy is, is is to just say, okay, let's just take it away and let's, let's see what, what kind of world happens. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, one thing that I think is, is uh, I suspect there would be, I, I don't know if it's at you know, 25%, I'm not sure where that number would fall, but I do think that there's a, a potential tipping point that could be reached because you were talking about, well, it, it, there's an oil tanker, it's leaving the Persian Gulf, maybe, you know, the naval forces of Saudi Arabia, such as they are, could could escort that. Um, well, right now, majority the majority of ships that are out there, they don't need any kind of an escort. Like, we, you know, ships don't have to be convoyed because there aren't serious threats aside from, you know, certain choke points uh, to global shipping. And Part of that is because there are enough naval forces either of the United States or backed by uh, the United States to to basically ensure that globally uh, the sea is more or less free and open. And I don't think that uh, some of the other nations of the world believe that that's how things should necessarily be. Like the the attitude that that China has expressed is is that no, you know. the sea shouldn't be totally free and open, particularly the waters around Taiwan. Uh, we should have uh, dominion over that or, or be able to contest it. Uh, we meaning uh, China. And so they want to be able to keep other, or we could imagine a future where nations like that want to want to keep others out of their waters and they want to extend to their waters, not just from what is generally agreed to, to be territorial waters today, but perhaps even, even farther. And that would have serious ramifications, not just for commerce, but also for for um, fishing. Uh, you know, who who gets to fish where, and how many fish can they extract from the ocean, uh, and what impact does that have on other nearby nations? Uh, these things all have all have an influence, and and I think the tipping point I'm speaking to is is maybe if there isn't enough global presence backed by the United States, then it sort of devolves into uh, a commons where there's a lot more of a contested region where it is necessary to begin to escort oil tankers and and others and then maybe the cost of all these goods it goes up significantly because they they have to be insured and so then you know somebody has to provide the escort uh and all that costs uh time and effort and and and, and money yeah so it's it's good to have a debate what is it what is it maybe for <laughs> why do we spend this money and in the united states specifically i think it's important to have the debate of where of the money that the defense department gets, where should it be allocated? You know, what should the relative percentages between the U S army, Navy and air force be, uh, right now it's, it's, it's fairly balanced, but, uh, 
is that what it needs to be in, in, in today's age? Because you know, it, it, the Navy gets a lot of uh, heavy use on its, on its ships to police the commons like this that uh, you know, the Air Force and the, the Army aren't subjected to to the same degree. Excellent. Now, my final question, which is about the Russian-Ukraine war that's going on. I'm going to ask you to once again put on your crystal ball. I know it's a little bit fuzzy and, and we're not betting even a dollar on this one. But still, how do you think the Russian-Ukraine war will end? I don't know how it's going to end, but but to tie it back to, to Nimitz and the work that I did uh, for the book, one of the things that I think is really important and worth keeping an eye on, uh, it, Nimitz was very good at building a, a staff structure that helped him uh, make sense of the unfolding war in the Pacific and how to take advantage of emerging opportunities. Uh, we talked earlier about how... Uh, sort of the secret sauce of the U.S. military is this individual initiative and an ability to adapt and adjust. And Nimitz was fostering that. And I think we can see when we look at Ukraine that it has so far um, shown that it has a similar advantage, at least when it comes to, to fighting against Russia. Right? Ukraine seems to be better able to understand what is happening you know, on the ground, tactically and then translating that back up making sense of that in a way that's effective that it could be that information could be used for uh, strategic or operational advantage and so uh, that the, the command in ukraine seems to be uh, better able to adapt adjust and take advantage of things uh, the, the russians seem to be stuck in an environment where uh, information isn't Flowing as freely within their command. I've seen suggestions that, you know, perhaps upper level commanders have a very incorrect impression about, you know, the size of some of their frontline units or their real capacity to fight. And, you know, that is leading them to make inadvisable, what we would consider inadvisable decisions if they did have better information, right? They, their decisions make sense in light of what they know, but what they know happens to be incorrect. Uh, and, if the Russians can't fix that, if they can't get to a point where they have a more accurate sense of what's going on and can make that sense, make sense of that faster, uh, then the Ukrainians are going to continue to have an advantage. They're going to outmaneuver them. I don't know if it's going to be sufficient for uh, the Ukrainians to take back the territory that, that Russia has occupied. But I do think that they're going to be in a fairly solid position to um, make the cost on on the Russians uh, of the fighting greater um, and seek a, a ceasefire or a, a peace opportunity that is going to be that is going to be more favorable to them, more favorable to the to the Ukrainians. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's how it if that's how it ends up or, or where it starts to head. Um, but, you know, I am not. Like I said, uh, <laughs> I'm not a modern day defense analyst. I, I look at history uh, and I'm just trying to draw out some some factors that were important uh, in history that I think have uh, resonance with some of the themes or, or some of the evidence that, that appears to be gathering today. As a history expert, as yourself, you know that uh, Russia turned around the tide, the USSR turned. I mean, they were getting their ass handed to them during the Barbarossa attack when Hitler was kind of pushing his forces into Russia and practically conquered Russia. And then finally, you know, it took them a while, but they finally kind of got their act together. But that was granted through mobilization. And of course, they were being attacked on their land. And so, of course, the Russians got a lot more motivated to get their act together because they were losing their land. 
Now it's a little bit different story because unless Ukraine decides to march all the way to Moscow, which of course they won't, is you know the the people in Russia are just not as excited to jump and mobilize and and do much. So that I think is the big difference between this conflict and World War II. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's a that's a very significant difference. You know, it's it's easy. I mean, the the Soviets called it the Great Patriotic War. You know, for a reason, right? The the nation here is is their nation is threatened, and uh, you know the the Nazis are a potentially annihilating force. Uh, and and it's it's sort of a fight or, or or die kind of a scenario, or at least it's it's easy to communicate that to. Um, the units uh, and down to the level of, of ind- individual soldiers as well. Uh, and I do think that the way, I mean, as as horrible as the, the Soviet regime was, I, I do think that they're, the way in which they were able to uh, inspire um, heroism among uh, their, their, their people is a fascinating story. And it, you can't do the same thing uh, with the fight in Ukraine today. Uh, I know that uh, Putin and, and his propagandists have tried to paint uh, Ukraine as uh, you know a hotbed of Nazism, um, but it, it's not hard if you can get out of the propaganda bubble that they're trying to create to see the falsehood that that that, that is, uh, and so you don't have the same kind of motivating influence uh, for Russian soldiers that you do for uh, Soviet soldiers back in the in the nineteen forties. It, it's it's hard to see how they could apply a similar paradigm. True. All right, Trent Hone, who is the author of Mastering the Art of Command, Admiral Chester Nimitz, and Victory in the Pacific, a book that has recently come out. It's an excellent book for anybody who is, who's fascinated by World War II history, about the Pacific, about the navies, and uh, I highly recommend it for those reasons. Trent, thank you so much for being on the WanderLearn show. Yeah, well, and that ends this really episode it. of the WanderLearn podcast, where we explore travel, technology, and transformation. If you'd like to see the show notes with links to what we've talked about, go to WanderLearn.com and click on this episode. If you'd like to connect with me, just remember F Tapon. That's my first initial and my last name. F Tapon is always my social media username. My website is ftapon.com. Do you want to leave me an anonymous voicemail where you can make a comment or ask a question? Then go to speakpipe.com slash ftapon. Furthermore, if you'd like to get rewarded for supporting my projects, then go to patreon.com slash ftapon. That's where you can pick up some remarkable rewards for as little as $2 a month. Now, five quick favors. Number one, subscribe to the WanderLearn podcast. Two, download it. Three, share it. Four, review it, and five, sign up for my newsletter at wanderlearn.com. Our theme music was composed by Eric Stratman. This is Francis Tapon encouraging you to wander and learn. Mm-hmm.